Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Friday morning from 10 to 11 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. My mother always used to say, if you want to get something done, give it to a busy person. She also said with great frequency and often under her breath, if you want something done properly, do it yourself, which I know I tend to also mutter impatiently. But I would add to her first quip that if you want to get something done, give it to a busy woman. And on this week's show, we have six incredibly busy women of the arts who work tirelessly and juggle many arts plates to add to our vibrant community. This week, we'll be visiting a festival, some theatre and an art bus. As always, it's a busy show. So let's head out. This September, the 14th iteration of the Roots and Blues Festival returns to the wide open grasslands of Stevens Lake Park. It has been a long 22 months since the 2019 festival, an interval that has been as devastating for the festival's organisers as it has for every other live venue operator around the world. But from Friday the 24th to Sunday the 26th of September, health conditions permitting, Roots and Blues is back and their lineup is verging on the revolutionary in presenting a lineup of almost exclusively female artists. Headlined by Brandy Carlisle, Cheryl Crow, Mavis Staples and Tanya Tucker, amongst many others. And in the first of what I hope is a couple of visits to Speaking of the Arts over the next month and a half, I am so happy to have two of the festival's directors and co-owners on this morning's show, Tracy Lane and Shay Jasper. Hello, Tracy and Shay, and thank you so much for making time to chat today. Thank you for having us, I know this past year has been absolutely heart-wrenching, emotionally crushing, and close to ruinous for you both. Tracy, How have you navigated the devastation of your industry, your festival and your livelihood over the past 18 months? Challenging is the word I keep using, but then I also keep thinking that there's also been this um, unprecedented gift of time that Shay and I have been given since we took full ownership at the very end of 2019, having a year to really look at each and every piece of what this event looks like and how we can make it our own, but still stay true to the history and the the love that our community has for this event. So now looking at it after all this time, um, it feels very differently than it did if you had spoken to us a year ago. A year ago was, you hit all the right notes there, Diana, devastating terrifying. Mm. Having no income right after we purchased this company, those those are the adjectives. But um, I think we have realized our strength was far beyond what we, we knew we were capable of doing. And, um, and here we are. It's going to be amazing. So how... You say it's, it looks very different than you had, you know, had this 18 months to think about the festival and to strengthen it and to play to your strengths. How is it different? How has it changed over this 18 months, would you say? 
I think we're looking to create a, a warmer environment. A, this is something that has been celebrated by music lovers, but um, Shay and I both grew up in multi-generational live music experiences, and that's something that's to our core really important to us. So creating a space that feels truly family-friendly, where people can bring their children or their grandparents and, um, you know, providing accommodations that really make sense for that. I mean, we're renting 50 acres of Stevens Lake Park, so we're spreading out. We're, we're utilizing all of that space, I think, more efficiently than ever before so that there's a real family area. Of course, the ADA tradition that was launched by Chuck Graham, we're, we're looking at continuing that and, and increasing that for folks with limited mobility so that those barriers um, are eliminated for anyone who has any doubts about whether or not every family member can be a part of this. And we also have made the change that children 14 and under can attend free with, with a family member or, you know, with a, with an adult to make it affordable for families to be able to be a part of this as well. Well, this past weekend was Lollapalooza in Chicago, and it honestly freaks me out just a little to see the photos of huge crowds of maskless people. And, you know, I know they were supposed to have a vaccine card of proof of vaccination or a negative test. Um, but I know there's been a lot of criticism from healthcare professionals about holding a festival of that magnitude at this time. So, Shay, how are you navigating the continued public health protocols here in Boone County? I, too, have been looking at those photographs and cringing because, you know, this this experience, we will not have 100,000 people with all of the, the same touch points as Lollapalooza has. We've been working consistently with the Boone County Health Department and our stage sponsor, MU Healthcare. Since the beginning, I mean, since we were in our homes, you know, Zooming, we've been in communication with, with the health department these last 15 months, making sure that this can be a safe experience. Uh, we have expanded the, the areas where uh, food service is being held so lines won't be as close together. We have increased the amount of hand washing stations. We are encouraging social distancing and masking. We are hosting a vaccination event on August 21st at Rose Music Hall to uh, encourage folks who are not currently vaccinated to get vaccinated before the festival. We have additional protocol that we're putting in place. And as I said, we're working very closely with the health department and MU Healthcare on that protocol. And we'll be communicating that to each pass holder, fans, potential pass holders in the next couple of weeks. Are you asking people to have proof of vaccination? Currently, that is not the plan. We are requiring everyone who is on our payroll, any staff member, any person involved in the production and the operation of the event to be vaccinated. We are requiring that. But as far as the pass holders, we are not currently requiring that, though that, that could change. I'm curious, Tracy, what is happening out there in the land of bands on tour? I mean... This is just one festival. I mean, for the bands, this is their livelihood as well. I mean, they're out there year after year, month after month performing. What is the scene like? Are bands back on tour? Bands are back on tour, and that really has just kicked in in the last month or so. Most of the tours that were canceled entirely 
in 2020, picked back up again in June or July. So the months ahead between June and, and October, you're seeing a massive amount of live entertainment out on the road because even most of the music festivals that typically occur in the spring months moved theirs to later this year than, than normal. And so you're seeing also a, a massive number of festivals happening, especially in September and October. So, you know, I think for the most part, artists take the vigilance of taking this virus very seriously. Uh, they, they share that desire as do we promoters, because as you said, this is our livelihood. This, this event is how Shay and I live. This is our our one opportunity to make money this year. So obviously last year there was none. And while that is not the priority, of course, it's not about making money. It's about the community engagement and the joy of live music that this sort of event brings. But I think um, artists are taking the mitigation seriously as well because they want to be out on the road. They want to share their art with their community. They want to do their jobs and they also want to support their families, their crews, their staff that didn't have any income last year, those crew members. I mean, I think a lot of people don't, you know, if you're not in this industry, you don't think about how many people were affected by this. Mm-hmm. There are statistics that show that the live music industry alone in the United States, there were 12 million people who were not employed last year. Because you think about it, the roadies, the bus drivers, the artists, the agents, the promoters, the uh, production crews, there's so many people employed by this industry. And so it's really, really important for people to take this public health issue seriously, get vaccinated, mask up when you can't social distance, and so that we can experience live music again. I mean, obviously, you've been working on setting up this year's festival for the best part of the last 12 months. But for a lot of that time, I mean, the world was so uncertain. There was no live venues. Everything was at a standstill. How difficult was it getting performers to commit to a festival six to 12 months in the future when no one knew what was going to happen? We are really fortunate. I think this festival has a great reputation for its longevity and out of all the 25 artists on this bill um, that we had booked way back in the end of 2019 for 2020, only two of those artists in the reshuffling, the great reshuffling of, <laughs> as the industry is calling it, the great reshuffling, uh, only two artists had routing conflicts that it no longer worked for them to be a part of this this year. So we are so grateful for that. I love that uh, this year's festival is all about women performers. Tracy, talk to me about this decision. Well, the three of us talked about this actually really early on when we were first in negotiation about buying this company. So Shay, myself, and Jamie Varvero were the only full-time year-round employees of the festival. So when Richard was ready to retire and offered the opportunity for us to take control of this company, that was one of the things that the three of us um, discussed really early on. And uh, a lot of people said we shouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but it makes a lot of sense. It makes so much sense. And the, the response has been so incredibly overwhelmingly positive. I'm not going to say every single person has been positive, but the positive response, you know, is tenfold that of the negative. I think for me, 
um, I started the first job I took, of course, was uh, doing production and or not production. <laughs> I'm not a production manager. <laughs> promotions for the Blue Note in 1991. And so this is a 30-year history of what this industry has looked like that I'm looking back on 30 years. And women have never been represented or adequately uh, treated fairly, I will say, in this industry. I think overall that this is a a man's world. Right. And um, we want to change that. We want to elevate women's voices, not only about just for making things equitable in this industry, but also making things safe in this industry. You know, the music industry is not the safest workspace for women either. And that is also a huge priority for us is that this is not just about more women on stage. This is about supporting more women in the industry overall. I mean, independent promoters in the United States have become a pretty rare thing in the 21st century, but female independent promoters, I think we're probably talking about a very minimal number of people. I think uh, Shay and I are, are a very rare breed and we want to change that too. I mean, we want to elevate women in the industry across every piece of that. You know, when we talk about those, those other things, techs and producers and agents and, and, artists. Um, Our goal is in the long run that this whole industry, that people will take a look, become more introspective about what our industry looks like and change that. And instead of just talking about it, we decided to just do it. So obviously, we, we're seeing the tip of the iceberg. We're seeing the women that are on the stage. And obviously, you and Shay as female promoters. Are you working behind the scenes to find female techs to work the festival too? We are. In fact, I just had a conversation with our lead stagehand yesterday, and we talked about that. I said, you know, I'd, I'd like you to do what you can to recruit a few more women on your crew this year. We had one last year. Uh, the production team from St. Louis that produces our stages and sound, their production assistant is a woman and she's fantastic. And we love working with her. We're really excited that she'll be back again. We've hired a new security team out of St. Louis, and in our initial conversation with them, they told us that about half of their staff are women, and that was really exciting for us. We're also partnering with, I'm sort of jumping ship here, but uh, another one of the aspects of elevating women's voices is we're working with a nonprofit from St. Louis, based in St. Louis, called the Angel Band Project. We want to help elevate their mission in the music industry this year too. And they provide music therapy for women who are survivors of sexual violence. So they will be on site and they will be offering interactive experiences with pass holders, people in in the audience who want to come and learn more about their program. One of the many wonderful things about Roots and Blues is how the lineup is a mixture of hugely famous performers and artists from Missouri and our own neighborhood who get to share the same stages as in many cases, I'm sure they're musical heroes. Shay, talk to me about how you decide who to invite locally. Sure. So uh, locally, I mean, Tracy and I, we, you know, before the pandemic, we were going to shows, we were really exploring the the local artists, but um, we have a lot of great contacts over at the Blue Note and Rose Music Hall that are constantly introducing us to new acts locally. 
a lot of these folks have supported us for many years and we just wanted to return the favor um, and make sure that they were elevated and had a platform at our at our event. Well, passes are now on sale. And as in past years, you have single day passes as well as weekend passes for all three days and VIP weekend passes, more often referred to as whole hog passes. Do you have a certain number of tickets available for people who can't afford the ticket price, Tracy? We do. In fact, again, this is a conversation that Shay and I just had yesterday. We haven't initiated that program. Uh, We did issue... In 2019, we issued 500 free tickets to low-income families in our community. This year, we have not launched that program yet because, again, we're watching so closely what kind of numbers we can do with regard to public health. And so, like many of the other aspects of the public-facing parts of this festival, we are um, delaying some of those final decisions so that we can be very conscientious about our capacity with regard to public health. But we do plan to offer some of those passes. What that number can be this year is not yet determined. So at this point, you don't know what the capacity of the festival can be. Do you have an idea of what numbers you're looking at compared to a regular pre-COVID times year? Like 50%? That number has flexed a lot since we put tickets on sale, actually. We started with a really conservative number. And then, you know, in this consistent communication with public health, things were looking better. We were looking at no limitations. Now with, uh, you know, what's happening, especially here in our home state, we're, we're watching that very closely and we're, we're having more regular conversations with the health department. So um, again, like what that final number is going to be, we can't really say that now because that's seven weeks away, but we're just monitoring our our access really closely and, and continuing to have these conversations with trusted health professionals that are aware of what's happening right in our local community. I know one of the things that you have done over the past year is set up a 501c3 nonprofit called Friends of the Festival to help sustain Roots and Blues, particularly right now, whilst income is lower, costs are higher, and the world of live music is so uncertain. Tell us a little more about that organization, Shay. Sure. So, so the mission of Friends of the Festival is to support the local economy by employing independently owned businesses that, that build the operational infrastructure of the festival. Um, and so because we experienced that complete halt in revenue and because of COVID-19 in 2020 and, and the start of 2021, we started 501c3 uh, to, to make sure that this can stay truly local. And people can donate to that as of right now. I think it's right on your website. You can go and donate to Friends of the Festival. Tracy, what are some of the immediate needs right now other than people getting vaccinated? I mean, do you need volunteers, more ticket sales, all of the above? What are your big needs? Yes, all of the above. (laughs) Um, Tickets are on sale. And as you said, we have options to choose from. We have not yet launched our volunteer application. So for those people, there's such a dedicated crew of people in our community who really make this festival possible by volunteering year after year, such as Diana Moxon, one of those great (laughs) volunteers. Um, We have not put that application out there, again, for the exact same reason. We want to make sure that when we put the information out there, that it will hold true when the festival actually happens. So we're pushing it much later than ever before. We do need those volunteers and we, we appreciate the enthusiasm. You know, we get daily 
queries about that. Why isn't it out there yet? It's like, well, we want to we want to give you the most up to date public health information and at the time, like what will be required of you as a volunteer. And it's just too soon to be able to make that determination right now, unfortunately. I mean, we're just, we're being overly cautious, but honestly, I don't, as I say that, I'm like, I don't think you can be overly cautious about what is happening. You know, when you look at the number of deaths and and terrible illness that has occurred because of this virus, being overly cautious is is not possible, but we are being as cautious as we possibly can about every aspect of our operations to ensure the safety of everybody on site. I think if you're not a festival organizer, it's hard to fully understand the mental hurdles that you and and the public health department are trying to jump through right now in organizing a festival that may or feasibly may not happen with an unknown number of people with an unknown level of protocols and you have to at all times be ready for all possibilities it's just huge are you sleeping at all tracy <laughs> i think we're finally sleeping a little bit better now I will say there were several months where, again, like if we'd had this conversation a year ago, the answer was no. I was not sleeping at all. Neither of us were sleeping at all. And we were constantly like recalculating, like how many more months can we pay the rent at the office? Mm. We had to disconnect our utilities at the office. We had to literally like, how how can we do this? And then And then it became also... How can we sustain our personal lives as well? You know, how can we pay our own mortgages and my daughter's college tuition and those things? I mean, all of that became a real question every day for months and months and months. And we didn't know when this was going to end. We didn't know if or when a vaccination would become available. We didn't know if we could survive the long term and And so, yeah, we still live in this, you know, our industry lives in this massive uncertainty because to do what we do requires a large number of people being able to safely gather. And, you know, and there's, as Shay spoke to the infrastructure costs, those infrastructure costs don't waver if the capacity has to be reduced, it still costs an immense amount of money to put up that fence, to rent those shuttles, to bring temporary electrical power and cables into the park, the temporary lighting structures that we have to bring in. The staging. The staging. Yeah, there's a a massive, massive amount of investments that we have to make, whether we have any income or not, if we're going to try to have this event. So Friends of the Festival was a great way for us to ensure that those infrastructure costs could be covered. And as Shay said, it's really important to us too that we use local contractors, local businesses, local individuals. I mean, there are also, you know, um, there's a long history of about 50, 75 people that work for the festival the week of the festival that help us literally build it. And um, we want those people to be paid for their work regardless of what we're facing. So Friends of the Festival helps to ensure that all those people, those local people 
get paid and get paid fully. <laughs> well, this year's Roots and Blues Festival will be at Stevens Lake Park from Friday the 24th to Sunday the 26th of September. You can see the full lineup of artists and find information about the festival at rootsandbluesfestival.com. Tracy and Shay, thank you so much for hanging in there over the past 18 months and for creating a festival that delights so very many people every year. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us, Diana. Thanks, Diana. Even before COVID slashed all live on stage acting roles to zero, the number of acting roles for female and female identifying performers was pretty abysmal. Locally, our theatre companies have worked hard to program plays with good roles for female actors. But you do have to search out those plays as the standard canon tends to favour men. And this paucity of roles was the impetus for the creation of Girl Rilla Theatre by Meg Phillips Crespi, a theatre company with colour-conscious casting where all roles, whether or not they were originally written for male actors, are performed by female-identifying performers. And like all theatre, Girl Rilla's programming has been on hold for the past 18 months, but this weekend it is back with a single show tomorrow night at Talking Horse Productions on St. James Street in Columbia. And here to tell us more about tomorrow night's show is its director, Hefsibar Neve, and actor Lena Agens. Hello, Hefsibar and Lena. Hello, hello. Hello. So, Lena, you have been performing on Columbia stages for many years and have seen by your last directing role was for a play with an all-female cast called the Green Book Wine Club Train Trip back in January last year. So let me start by asking you, Lena, how much how much does this lack of female roles resonate with you and your time on Columbia stages? Well, I think it's always been difficult for me to find roles as a woman even because I'm such a specific type. Um, I'm definitely not an ingenue and I'm a strong personality type. So a lot of those roles are often given to men. So I love the opportunity to be able to challenge myself in those sorts of roles as well. Is it harder as you get older? I mean, again, those roles that do exist for women, do they tend to be for younger women? Is it harder to find good, strong roles for more mature women? Well, I would say the best roles are probably in your 20s and then 30s and 40s, unless you might have a mom role here and there, but now I'm looking forward to those delicious uh, matronly <laughs> roles, the grandmother roles. And I think there actually is a lot more available as you get older. Um, it's that middle range that it's difficult for women, which is much of the reason why I left New York when I did. I had just hit my 30s and it just, um, you know, it's time to come home. <laughs> so, Heffy, the paucity of female roles is nothing compared to the lack of roles for black and brown actors, especially roles where they get to tell their stories. Do you think we're doing enough on our stages locally to change that shortage? I think that I have to give credit to what Columbia is doing. They are definitely making an effort to provide more roles for Black and brown actors in Colombia, it's not perfect. And also there is the general lack of roles written for Black and brown actors. But whatever there is, I think that Colombia is doing their best to bring it here. And there's always going to be room for improvement. But I definitely have to commend the effort. 
Well, good. There are definitely a lot of plays written for black and brown actors, but it just, they never make it into the standard canon. That's the, the difficulties, getting theatres to expand their reach. So all the gorilla shows are billed as dynamic staged readings. Heffy, would you talk a little bit about what that is? Kind of describe that for us. So what it is, is it's basically a stage reading in that the actors do hold the script in hand. In this case, it's uh, on a Kindle. But we try to add as much as we can, like still using props and costumes, very minimal set, so that it's more than just a stage reading where all the actors are seated on stage reading from a book. It's more dynamic, there's acting, there's blocking, but it's not a full-blown production. Selena, learning lines seems not only like a huge and mental undertaking, (laughs) but also something that requires considerable amounts of time. Is learning lines something that comes easily to you or is this stage reading option like a gift from the theatre gods? I would go with the latter, especially (laughs) the older I get. Um, it, It is kind of a blessing. And the other thing is that it's lovely that we get to, you know, have one week's worth of rehearsals and then we put a performance up and get to reintroduce old plays to the public, which I think is really lovely. So this weekend's show is two one-act plays. Augustus Does His Bit, a true-to-life farce written by George Bernard Shaw in 1917. And the second is The Spotted Man, a tragic comedy written somewhat presciently, given our current circumstances, in 2007 by a contemporary American playwright called Walter Wicks. Heffy, tell us a little bit about Augustus Does His Bit. Augustus Does His Bit is, as you said, written in 1917, and it's based on a war officer who's been sent to a little village during the war. I think it's the First World War during this time, and his job is to try and recruit more people to join the army. And he is in this place where, so he believes that he's all that, and, you know, he's super important, but... The people around him don't necessarily think so. <laughs> and so it's just this funny play where this man who thinks so highly of himself is made a fool of with a trick that gets played on him. And it is set in England. Are you setting your play in England? We are taking a little bit of liberty with that. <laughs> and we're good. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's already a farce. So we're not going to be doing the. British accents, but we are going to try to make it as high American as we can. (laughs) But um, we're keeping it in America. Always makes me happy when I don't have to listen to English accents. So, (laughs) (laughs) Lena, The Spotted Man, the perfect play for our pandemic times. Tell us a little about that play. Well, the play is about a gentleman who is plagued with these spots and he goes to the doctor and it's one misunderstanding after another and just kind of a barrel of monkeys, you know. It's just kind of a fun, fun little spoof. A fun little spoof. Meanwhile, a pandemic is breaking out in the background. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> Hence its relevance to our times. Why did you choose these two plays and put them together, Heffy? Um, well, technically, I didn't select the plays. Uh, the artistic director did that. But I think from talking to her, the inspiration was something fun and lighthearted, being that this is the first 
in-person show that we're bringing back since this whole thing started is something for us to laugh at and especially Spotted Man. I feel like that was just perfect a play where you know, there's a pandemic going on and it's the end of the world and just to laugh at everything and kind of let off some stress and a good welcome back to the theater kind of thing. Yeah, that one definitely seems like a very clever choice for the times. I, I couldn't quite understand Augustus does his bit. Other than it's a one-act funny play, I wasn't sure how that had relevance to us today. Do you have a sense of that at all, of how it relates to us today? I think it's, uh, like you said, kind of bringing it back, a classic, back into in front of audiences. Um, everyone loves George Bernard Shaw. I mean, everyone knows his work. And it's just one of those things that is a classic and will always be funny, I believe. So um, I think it was just trying to find two funny things, not necessarily related, related to each other. And I think war is kind of like a pandemic also. So that would be um, my guess. So you have an excellent cast of comedic actors, as well as Lena, you have Dee Dee Falkertz and Stacey Pottinger, well known for being cast members of the Stable Boys improv troupe. And you have Elka Falkertz too. So with such a solid cast and not a huge amount of stage set to speak of, what is your role as director, Heffy? I believe my role is to try to bring out as much funny as possible with as minimal props and set as possible. So we're going more physical with it and just having fun with it. Lena, you've been away from the stage for so long, like everybody has. Are you excited to be back on it? Are you anxious? I mean, how does it feel now that we're in the midst of yet another pandemic surge to be mingling with people again? Well, to be really honest with you, I did kind of buckle at the thought of having a live audience, but uh, the artistic director has asked that our patrons that visit us do wear a mask. Uh, we are not able to wear masks. It impedes the the performance, mm. but we're we're kindly asking if the patrons wouldn't mind wearing masks to keep us all safe. We're not like saying it's required, but we're just asking if people would kindly wear masks based on the CD, recent CDC update. Right. Okay. Well, Girl Rulers production of two one-act plays, one by George Bernard Shaw, Augusta Says His Bit, and the other by Walter Wicks. The Spotted Man is on for one night only at Talking Horse Productions tomorrow night, August the 7th. The performance is presented in partnership with Talking Horse Productions and the MU Department of Women's and Gender Studies. Curtain call is 7.30 and you can find out more at talkinghorseproductions.org. Hefsi Barneve and Lena Agens, thank you so much for the chat. Thank you. Thank you so much. Many years ago, I thought, wouldn't it be fabulous to have an art bus that could travel around Colombia, visiting schools and neighbourhoods, giving children the chance to engage in more art making, maybe meet artists, work on group projects. And then in the evening, the art bus could cater to grown up painting parties, maybe with cocktails. And it would be this wonderful combination of a non-profit free service, but also with some self-funding built into it. Well, like most things I have ideas about, I never actually made it happen. But I am delighted to see that two organizations in Colombia are making it happen. The Colombia Art League and Jabberwocky Studios and the executive directors from both organizations, Kelsey Hammond and Linda Schust, are here to talk about the art bus. Welcome back to the show, Kelsey and Linda. 
Thank you. So my art bus desires have long been buried by the sands of time, although I've always regretted it. So Kelsey, tell me how the Columbia Art League Jabberwocky Studios collaboration for an art bus started. Sure. I mean, I feel like I think Linda reached out to us and Karen, who is our outgoing education and outreach director, went, the art bus. And it was sort of like, as if she had just like ripped open this magical box of things that came spilling out. And, and I was like, yeah, art bus, let's, what, you know, what's going on guys. And, um, it just unfurled from there. But I think Linda was the first one to make contact with us because art buses, you know, it's a great idea and it's done in other communities really successfully. So there's no reason why we shouldn't be able to do it. Linda, why did the art bus start for you? Actually, it was a little tiny seed that was planted in my brain some years ago by Tony Messina, who works for the city. And we were talking about ways to reach out to underserved communities in town. And she said, there's always been this idea about getting an art bus going. So it kind of the seed after a couple of years germinated. And so I decided it was time to like try to see if we could get it going. I mean, there's practical considerations. At the time that I was looking at an art bus, I recall that the library was selling its bookmobile. And I thought, oh, that would be great. We could just turn the, or the mobile book, whatever it's called, into an art bus. And they were selling it pretty cheaply. And it was a sealed bid. And I don't know what we bid, but we didn't get it. But I mean, there was quite a considerable cost involved, because not only do you have to kit the bus out and make it look pretty, but then you've got to run it and buy fuel and have a driver and store it somewhere and fix it when it goes wrong. So how are you dealing with the costs of an art bus, Kelsey? So we are, um, we have luckily partnered with the STEM Alliance. And so they are loaning us the use of the steam bus. The A in steam is for arts. And so um, we are really lucky to have them help us out with some of that so, so we didn't have to purchase a bus. They've loaned it to us and we're taking care of some of the costs in terms of fuel and that kind of thing ourselves. And But the the idea, the goal is to have our own bus at some point so that we can, like you say, do things on the weekends. Maybe instead of Saturday for free programming, people could rent us out for birthday parties or we could do some evening activities and things like that. So um, right now during the pilot program, being able to have access to their bus is really, really helpful. So, Kelsey, so that we can envisage the art bus and we know what to look out for when it drives down our street, can you describe it for us? Sure. So it is a light blue school bus, which if you're staring at it face on, you know, with the the lights looking at you like giant eyeballs, it looks like a regular yellow bus because for some reason that part is yellow. But the rest (laughs) of the bus is wrapped in light blue and it has all sorts of different donors names on it and things which are all put together by these system of pipes that connect everybody, which is kind of a great idea that art connects us or that the steam world connects us all together because engineering, math, science, all those things are all integrated in our lives in so many different ways with everything we use, right? So um, the bus looks like a cloud sort of floating in the world. And then um, how we've been doing it is that we haven't been setting up on the actual bus as much because again, COVID, it's summer, we can be outside, we want kids to see there's activities happening. So if we had everybody on the bus you might not see that there's something going on. So we have tables set up outside the bus and underneath the awning. And so you can see that there's art activities or there's dancing or the other day kids were making shakers and 
doing some drumming and stuff like that. So you can't miss it because it's a giant, big, blue cloud looking bus. So they're inside in the winter or on a rainy day, there are tables and then lots of cupboards with equipment in it. And you can just use anything that's on the bus, right? That is how, yeah, that's how CPS has used it. It is really tricked out, I would say, for STEM things. So it would have computers inside and things like that and little stools that kids can sit on and they can work at different things or like Legos and things that they can bring out and and try their hand at like Lego robotics and that kind of thing. It has not, I think, part of the reason that we're bringing the A back in STEM to make STEAM is that you really can't have engineering and things without art. It's actually one of those essential components to design, right? So like, if you're going to design the next phone or the next device or the next computer, you have to have art somehow integrated into that program. You have to think about how is the user going to use this? What feels good on people's fingers? How does What's the design look like? All that kind of stuff, because people still shop with their eyeballs. Um, even if they know that the brains of something is really smart, they still want something that looks nice. So with all of that said, the A part of the STEM philosophy of the bus, I think it was getting maybe lost sometimes. So we're really focusing on bringing the art outside of physically the bus just so people can get more messy. We're not going to like ruin people's, you know, Legos and and the whole setup in there (laughs) with like a messy pastel drawing, you know, or something like that. So Linda, Jabberwocky Studios programs include dance, African drumming, spoken word poetry, theatre, a steam camp, and DJing classes. I mean, you do a really wide range of activities. So tell me about the kind of arts projects that you're bringing to children via the art bus. Presumably, it's not just fine art. Correct. We're trying to do, we're trying to make it so that each weekend when we go out, we have different art activity on the bus. So it's a way of introducing kids to a smattering of different kinds of art activities so that children can find the thing that they vibe with the most. So through this wonderful partnership with the Columbia Art League, we've been able to schedule lots of amazing visual artists, but we're also bringing the kids, like Kelsey said, last weekend we did a drumming activity. We've had dance. The first week they went out, they offered dance to the students. So we're trying to really bring kids on board and asking kids to come out and try something new for the first time. We find that you know, different children are comfortable with more comfortable with different art forms and more likely to want to interact and embrace those particular art forms. So we're trying to have something for everyone, basically. So you're bringing guest artists as well onto the bus. So you have a teacher and then you have a, a featured artist each weekend? Correct. Each weekend, there's a different artist schedule. Well, some of the artists schedule two weekends in a row because we go to four sites total. So if you go two weekends in a row, you reach all four sites. But yeah, it's a, each weekend there's a different artist on the bus and then we have the driver there and then we also will have one other pair of hands there to just to help out with logistics and things. So Kelsey, I mean, we are lucky in Colombia and having a school system that does recognise the importance of the arts for children's self-expression and development. I mean, it is summer, so school is out. How does the art bus dovetail with and augment what is already being offered within the school system? Or or will this not happen once the fall comes around and school starts again? Or do you cross over at all? We are scheduled to go through September 18th for this pilot program that we've worked through. So there will be some crossover with school starting. Um, we are really lucky that Columbia has such a strong arts program for kids in the public schools. I think that there 
the same thing that happens in any kind of art space is that if you, um, if you have to sit in a seat or if you have to abide by certain rules being in school, which of course are useful when you're doing classroom management for a teacher, aren't always the most conducive for kids who want to make art, how they want to make art. And I think the idea for the art bus is that you will have kids who can kind of really experiment. You know, there's not, it's not that they aren't learning a cool thing about art, but it's really about expression. It's really about breaking loose. And you know, from the art league classes, we have a, we have a lesson that we teach, but you know, if kids don't want to sit on the stools in the classroom, they don't have to, like they can get up and move around and it's much more free flow. And so I think that's the goal is that, that kids like Linda was saying, can find the thing that really vibes for them that they get into that they're inspired by that they hopefully will go, Oh, we did we made shakers out of those recycled things. I could probably make that at my own house. And even if you have limited resources, which many of the folks that were hopefully serving, they might not have as many resources, they would be able to make art with what they do have. So I think there's like a learn how to make it and then keep going with it if you really like it. Right. Linda, how does the collaboration work in terms of who does what? <laughs> how do you and Kelsey divide up the labor? <laughs> Well, if I could just, can I add on a little bit? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, I, I mean, you were saying there's such a wonderful arts community here in Colombia in that we do have schools that embrace the arts. But there are a lot of children who receive a lot of additional arts education and experiences extracurricularly. But that's not necessarily equitable across all neighborhoods and all socioeconomic classes. So one of the things that we're trying to do with the art bus is to give those students who maybe have barriers to access in the arts, financial barriers or cultural barriers or barriers of transportation, access to additional extracurricular arts activities that they otherwise would not have. Right. No, that's a, that's a good addition. I didn't mean to step on Kelsey, but I wanted to add that in. Oh no, it's, (laughs) it's perfect. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then as far as we decide who's going to do what, we are basically at this point trying to formalize an arrangement where we, because as we do this pilot project, we learn more about what we're going to need to really make it be what we want it to be. So at this process, we're formalizing and trying to formalize an arrangement where we're looking for somebody to always be that extra pair of eyes and ears and hands on the bus. And in the meantime, Kelsey and I are pretty much dividing it between the two of us. So each weekend, one of us has been on the bus. And that was especially important to us as the project is getting started because we wanted to be the ones that would be there to see what was working, what wasn't working, how we can make things better. A lot of extra time from the two of you then. <laughs> Kelsey, obviously this is not a project that makes money for either organization, but rather it is a project which has to be funded and, and needs to be paid for. How do you fund the art bus? So far, I have um, we've done a social media post, so we've put it out on our Facebook page. We've had over, I think it's over 8,000 people it's reached, which is incredible. I would love to see a few more donations, even $5 really, really helps out this project and will help sustain it. Both of our organizations have reached out to different places in the community. So I have reached out to VUF with the Veterans United Foundation, and they've given us a wonderful grant to help get this started. And um, Linda's been working with people as well, which she can talk about, but it really is going to be a labor of funding love from the community to help it keep going. And I think that we've seen this in the world, especially in our country, we're seeing this like racial reckoning happening where 
where the inequities of, like Linda was saying, like what's in the public school system, but then what people have access to outside of that system Mm. um, and where people can travel. And if they can travel, like if an art bus can come to your community when your parents don't have a car, that's going to help you. You don't have to have someone pick you up and take you. And that doesn't have to be a consistent thing. Like the bus will be the consistent thing that can come to your neighborhood and you can count on that. And I think that becomes really powerful for, for kids who maybe don't have stability in their home or in their neighborhood or, you know, whatever it is. So, so we need people who can pay a $5 donation or a $50 or a $500 donation to help us keep the program going. And that's, that's the goal is that this will be longer than just a summer pilot that we'll be able to do this more. I think you put online that the Veterans United Foundation had donated $5,000 to the pilot project. So that's really to get you through the summer to pay for teachers and supplies and fuel. Mm -hmm. But then for it to be a longer term, then you have a fundraising campaign that is happening right now. People can donate online via each of your websites and also via Facebook, I think, too, right? Correct. Yeah. Sending a check is just fine, too. And I have to give credit to... Jabberwocky also received funding from the Community Foundation of Central Missouri for the project. Yeah. So like I said, Linda and I are, you know, we run our own organizations here, but this is like not only for our own personal methodology of living our lives is to make sure that we can create access for people to make art and kids especially, or to be around art, appreciate art, but that we can partner up together so we can share the load has been really, really awesome. So I think that we're hopefully we'll be able to incorporate more organizations going forward who can also participate and help get the programming more varied and that kind of thing too. So what is the schedule for the bus, Kelsey? Where does it go and how often does it travel around? It's just weekends, is that right? Yeah, it's just on Saturdays. So right now we go to four locations and we've kind of had to adjust, you know, part again, part of the pilot <laughs> pilot summer is that we're seeing where the kids are and Linda can kind of talk about how she identified the different neighborhoods. But essentially, on the first Saturday, we go to these two locations at 10am and one at 1pm. And then the next Saturday, we'll go to the alternate two locations at 10am and 1pm. And it's the same art project for both of those locations so that we just have the teacher for that they just come for that one day. And then we'll just repeat that on the next Saturday and the next Saturday. So it alternates the locations for now. And Linda, where are those locations? So currently, we're parking the bus on one Saturday, we are in the Blind Boone Community Center parking lot. And then in the afternoon, we go basically across the street and we're parking over behind Douglas High School, so across Providence. And then on the alternating Saturday, we're at the United Community Builders Cathedral in the morning. And that's up on Town Drive, near Town Drive and Quail Drive on the northeast part of town. And then in that afternoon, we're on Godis Drive, which is also it's right off of Clark Lane. And so those are the locations we're at right now. I have had a number of people reach out to me and say that they would love for the bus to visit X, Y, or Z location. So while we're in this pilot stage, we're just focusing on these four. But hopefully, you know, if the program keeps gaining momentum, we'll be able to serve more neighborhoods and be at more areas. So I feel like this next six months is crucial because once we have our own bus or our own vehicle, then we'll be able to not only reach more people, but we'll also be able to use that to do kind of paid activities like you were discussing to help sustain the program. You were talking about having your own bus. Are you talking about 
buying this bus or buying a whole different bus and and kitting it out from scratch? I don't feel like this bus is for sale. (laughs) I think they're just generously letting us use it. And also, I mean, the bus, we desperately want to have a bus and we want it to look great and work really well. But for what we're doing, this bus is probably a little more kitted out than we need it to be. It has hard drives and computer stations all along both walls. It has solar panels on the top that actually it can run the computers off grid. And so the expense that the STEM Alliance put into that bus is more than what we would need in order to be able to get the bus that is perfect for us. So that's one of the reasons we feel like our this is an achievable goal if we can really engage support from the community. I always wanted to have a double-decker bus. <laughs> Painted red or no? Two on the nose? <laughs> Painted like a cloud. Oh, perfect. Exactly. <laughs> Lovely. And I think you can do that. I read about, is it a restaurant? Is it Catalpa in Ararok? She was talking about importing a double-decker bus as a, as a movable restaurant. I heard about that. Yeah, yeah. So I think you can bring over an old double-decker bus and, and then have it painted. I thought that would be fantastic. That would be amazing. Anyone listening, if you want to help us fund that, let me know. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, do you have a sense of what that might cost? Not necessarily a double-decker bus, but when you're thinking about having your own bus, are you thinking, yeah, well, we'd need to raise $20,000 or $50,000? Do you have a kind of a ballpark idea in case somebody with a very large checkbook is listening? (laughs) I've done a little used bus shopping and... Yeah, I think we're looking at like $30,000 as a probably a starting point. And I think it can it can go up from there depending on how old the bus is and how much it's going to take to get it roadworthy and, and then actually doing the renovations and refurbishing it. So I think that's probably a price point we would need to hit. Yeah. And I would I think we should say too that the city of Columbia has been helping us a lot too with uh, helping us kind of organize things, but also potentially will help us find a parking spot for it and this kind of stuff. So they're definitely one of those partners that have been in from the beginning, helping us think out loud how it could work for some of that, what feels like minor details, but are actually really important. Well, I am so happy that you have made this happen. I've always thought it was such an awesome idea. And and finally, two people came along that could make it happen. So congratulations. Thank you. you. It's been a pleasure working with Kelsey and the Columbia Art League. Yeah, I agree. I just think Linda, I think Jabberwocky is amazing. And Linda's just uh, her beautiful big brain. It's just so great to work with. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the art bus, also known as the steam bus for certain parts of the year, will be traveling around, or the STEM bus rather, will be traveling around Columbia this summer and early fall, and we'll be visiting different locations on alternate weekends. You can find out more if you look at the Columbia Art League's website. You can go to the About tab and then Outreach. And also you can go to both Jabberwocky Studios and Columbia Art League's Facebook pages and see information about it or just reach out to both organizations if you want to make a donation or you have an idea about a future location maybe. Kelsey Hammond and Linda Schust, I am just so pleased that you are making the Art Bus a reality. Thank you for filling us in this morning. Thank you so much. Thank you, Diana. And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm, as well as on Spotify. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Mm. 
my guests today, Roots and Blues Festival directors Tracy Lane and Shay Jasper, director Hefsivar Neve and actor Lena Agents, and Jabberwocky Studios' Linda Schust and the Columbia Art League's Kelsey Hammond. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can find more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, mid-Missouri! Missouri.